Welcome to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. We talk to extraordinary people that you've heard of and extraordinary people that you haven't. We pick their brains about how they get stuff done. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. This week's guest not only is one of the loveliest people I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing, she's also given me the biggest, oh my God, pinch me moments of my life. I am of course talking about the one and only Kate Sobrano. If you've been listening to music at all in Australia from the late 80s up till now, Kate Sobrano has been there every step of the way from her entry onto the music scene in the 80s with her band Let's Talk to starring as Mary Magdalene in the 1992 Australian production of Jesus Christ Superstar, to playing Bloody Mary in South Pacific in 2012, right up to 2020 with the release of her new album, Sweet Inspirations. We chat about her debut onto the music scene in Melbourne in the 80s, being a creative in the time of Corona, and her number one tip for success, drill, 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 and know your shit. Please do excuse my celebrity gushing throughout this interview for every 90s kid who spent hours singing the Sobrano version of Everything's Alright in a Mirror, holding a candle and wearing a velvet choker, seamlessly switching from Jesus to Judas and back to Mary in this epic medley. This episode is for you. This episode is also dedicated to my dear dad, who has been a next level Kate fan for as long as I can remember. In your book, I'm Talking, which I did read last week, you say that you were born and raised in Melbourne and that you did actually always want to be famous, that you'd be driving around in the family car and you kind of wished that someone would stop and go, that's her, that's the girl I've been looking for. Is being famous better or worse than you expected? Well, I think I'd recouch the word famous. I'd use a different word if I was writing it. At the time when I wrote the book, um, I was working with another writer who had come to me by his wife, actually, who I'd done some work with. Um, she was a she's a reporter, and there's a there's a plane going overhead. Can you hear that? That's amazing. And I'm saying I'm actually pointing it out because that's an anomaly in this day and age that a plane should be overhead. Right? Of course, so yeah, I'm like, that's so I'm unusual. I'm going to point it out. There's a plane. <laughs> um, so anyway. The long story short is that I ended up working with a ghostwriter, which I thought in the end was unnecessary, and that there were certain elements that were altered or changed just for expedience' sake. And I would have rather had actually named that feeling a lot better, and I wouldn't have named it as desiring to be famous. Actually, I would not have named it like that. If I was going to be more explicit, it was mostly that I wanted to be noticed in a way that my being here made a difference that my actual existence was noticed by someone else. It wasn't just something that occurred and I was going to just float as a as a leaf might along the, the river of life and you meet up with other leaves and eventually you get banked up at different places and you join groups. You know what I mean? Like I, I, what I wanted more than fame was I just wanted to know that me being here was noticed by someone else and that's pretty and much more how about I like- more about like you, what your contribution to the world is rather than other people kind of knowing who you are. Yeah, and and even not even that ambitious, not even that ambitious, but more like, for instance, like we were, I was raised in an area which is probably, I don't know where you live, but 
where we were in Victoria was out in the eastern suburbs, which were just orchards at the time. And there was like this kind of barren landscape of possibility. They had one Westfield shopping centre on the top of a hill and, and then beneath and below and all of that was just like apple orchards, citrus orchards, um, inexpensive housing, you know, feral children. And <laughs> What suburb was that? It was in Doncaster, in, in North Bourne, oh. Doncaster. And I don't know, I just kind of like popped my head up and I'm thinking, oh, even at that age I recall thinking, well, I just don't want to be in a sea of all of this space around me. I'd rather feel like there was something, some reason, some purpose for me being here. Have you been back to Doncaster as an adult now? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, is your family still based there? No, we're not. And that's probably why I go back there a lot because I want to reconnect to something that was very truthful and meaningful to me at that age. I loved, we lived three generationally, grandparents in the house, parents in the house, all of the family lived there until well into our our teens. In fact, me, the youngest and the only girl, I was the one that moved out at 16, but the boys didn't move out till they were well into their 18, 19 um, years of age. And and I'd sort of return back if I felt that I needed to fill my cup or, you know, kind of like drink um, from the energy of my family group and feel secure. I think, I don't know where you are. Have you got siblings? I do. I have one brother and I live in uh, country Victoria, but I used to live in Melbourne. Okay. And where are you in the order of age? Are you the eldest or Oh, the I'm the youngest. Youngest. Yeah. Well, I have a theory about the young ones. I think that we are the most cocksure and confident and probably because we can flex our wings and sort of go from the space, come back to the space that will. I feel sorry for our older brothers and sisters because they're the ones that were ultimately responsible. You know, where is Kate? Where is she? What's she doing? If you, did you hold her hand when you crossed the street? Um, how come she's still out and you guys are home now? And I was just a terror away. Crazy. So, no, um, I, yeah. Oh, no, I was, just, I was just wondering what birth order is your husband? Youngest as well. I have a theory. My husband is also the youngest and I've got a theory that people in the same birth order find people in the same birth order. Happens I agree. a lot. I totally agree. I don't even think it's even like, a, it's not even a benign coincidence. It's absolute God smacking truth. There's no way out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so technically your career started when you were busking with, busking with your brother, Phil, but you've got, how many brothers do you have? I've got three in total, but the uh, the first brother, my eldest brother, just to another father, and that was um, a story that, well, that gets obviously cleared up in other stories and it, that's a big story in itself. But um, I was raised with two elder brothers and we're just a year apart. Oh, okay. And so your, your brother Phil was the one that you busked with and that led to regular backup gigs with bands playing in Melbourne in the 80s and you lived in a tiny flat in Hawthorne on your own. Can you tell us what that scene was like back then? Well, it was different to today and hard to probably explain to people whose lives have been uh, electronically organised by social media, um, calendar events that pop up and have reminders and and Zoom classes and training that requires you to be absorbed with this medium which takes you out of time and place. I I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm just like, you know, scoping through Instagram or I'm doing something onto Facebook... I'll have had a thought and then if I've just moved one page, I almost make the thought evaporate. Has that happened to you? Absolutely. Which makes me incredibly furious at this kind of takeover. There's some sort of like I feel like I I get really resentful about that. 
Um, but so I'd have to take you back to in order to answer your question to a life before social media. Um, my brother and I, yes, I started busking with him, but not because of the security of being with him. I was the one who had more front than Myers and I was the one saying, come on, let's go make some money this weekend. We can sing these songs. My brother actually had much better taste than me and he wouldn't perform the songs that if he felt that he couldn't do a really good justice by the song, he wouldn't do it. And I'd be like, ah, who cares? <laughs> Throw caution in the wind. Let's just play the same three chords twice, you know. No one's going to notice. And he's like, no, this is the Beatles, Kate. You can't mess with the Beatles. And I'd be like, purist. Ah, I care. Yeah. He's the middle child, purist, very, very, uh, ve- there are very clean rules of operation with my brother Phil. He's the one who appears to be the most reckless, but he's the most organised. Did he me, sing as well? Uh, primarily played guitar, but he does sing beautifully. Yeah, he does sing. So busking moved into, and then I just sort of free fell from the busking scene. I didn't need anyone anymore because I was going into clubs and pubs and I I remember sitting in one particular club and I was about 16, um, maybe just 15. I was 15 actually. And there was this guy in a op shop suit um, playing the stand-up piano in the venue and and he was playing a very distinct 1920s-style Cab Calloway, old school, with the bottom hand doing all the bass notes. It's a very, musically speaking, if anyone studied music, they'd know it's it's a really rare way to play the piano. And they, you know, um, songs like um, If I Sing You a Little Bit, You'll Get the Vibe. But that's it. It's only a paper moon hanging on a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. That's so, that's sort of... 1920s, 1930s, and I walked up to him and I was like, that that really resonates. I, I don't know what words I was using at the time, but I feel like I know this music. And he was in this 1920s suit out of an op shop and um, his name is Stephen and he said, and he sings like an old school 1920s crooner and we became a band and I was uh, 16, 15, 15, and that was called the Hoagie Cats. And I just started performing and we were doing all the clubs and pubs and we were doing all of the restaurants at the time. Apparently it didn't seem to matter if you were illegally in a club at that age. You just, if you had <laughs> enough, mate, if you had older people around you and they were taking responsibility, no one seemed to pay any attention. You know? I can remember when I first moved to Fitzroy and I used to go to the Black Hat on uh on not not fit, what's the main street? On Brunswick Street. And um, oh, I can remember someone telling me that you used to sing there. No, I actually worked there. As Oh, you as, worked there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my first job at 14 was at the Black Cat. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Like, as, to, a- as a 14-year-old, I used to hitch a ride on a scooter. A friend of mine, um, Dan, who was friends of the owner uh, at, at the time, I was so determined to get out of school. I really didn't I, – I knew for certain I wasn't going to be pursuing an academic career. I knew I was going to be an artist and um, – Henry Mars, who owns the Black Cat and started it, he was a very interesting person, like a super interesting person. He he had this coffee house, which was probably the only one in its area at the time. Brunswick Street was not like it is today. Um, and he said, "Look, I'll take you on. You can you can make coffee, and um, you can look like a nineteen fifties kind of jazz 
<laughs> diva which you are um i was terrible at making coffee as i recall but i loved it they played jazz there all day every day and i met my future boyfriend steve kearney there who was an actor and a comedian um i worked i worked there in the day i sang gigs at night and then eventually lived in kerr street you know that little street around the corner yeah, yeah. Street? i lived in this massive big three-story walk-up and it was like a, a friend of the family and I just used to drop, you know, I'd just go in and sleep on the floor or it was so different back in that day, very, very casual. That's why I'm so fascinated about your life performing in Fitzroy because I did live in Fitzroy for close to seven years um, over the last decade and it's just so gentrified now but I've, I've heard little pockets of stories and I just can't imagine how amazing it must have been to have the club scene and with no social media like you wouldn't have been like how did you find out about gigs and and how did you kind of tell people about other people it just like I I think kind of trying to figure out how that worked back then is a bit fascinating for us all I think social media has coddled us up in swaddling to be honest because it's made us um less ambitious we we don't talk to people we don't sit down at people with at a cafe or avail ourselves to the possibility that someone might sit down and join you and then you have this incredible conversation which leads you into a life of perhaps meeting one of the greatest artists uh, in Victoria or um, I believe we've been cut off by this. So we're getting pumped with information but it's it's a superficial experience and the actual life experience is being replaced by this artificial experience. And back in that day you say, how did you, how did it get that way, you know, um, there was less policing, uh, there was more confidence in human nature and there were less violent, cruel acts of, of boredom and, and drug abuse. There weren't as many drugs. There was probably alcohol. Um, but the kind of drugs went, that, that, that were available today, that are available today, were, ne- were, were not around. You know, if, if you, even as a child, if you, you knew a junkie and you knew that that was their scene I'll even go so far and it's very kind of like um, politically incorrect to say it was a pure scene because it was entirely related to them. They didn't bring it out in and on the street necessarily. I mean, I say that again, I take it back because, I mean, junkies make a lot of trouble for a lot of their family and, and other things. But for the most part, you were safe. I mean, as a teenager, I used to catch trams all over the city to all hours of the night and everyone took responsibility for me as well, including the tram drivers. They'd say, hey, okay, you're out here at night. No worries. I'll make sure you get settled off at your stop and make sure that there's no one in and around or anyway. I, I don't know. I think um, a lot has changed in just 40 years. I mean, you didn't wear belt, you know, you didn't wear seat belts or bike helmets or, you know what, I mean, you just didn't even think to do it. So... I don't know. In one way, we've kind of gained in one hand and we've lost so much in the other. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Like I'm sitting here chatting to you today, feeling nostalgic about, uh, you know, how amazing your experience would have been as an artist in the 80s. Um, And I'm acting like 
that's something that I wasn't a part of. I, I was a kid in the 80s. Like, I'm not far behind you, but, you know, you, you were like a teenager when, you know, I, I was kind of... You no, know. no, clearly, darling, looking at your beautiful face, you're much younger than me. And <laughs> no, I, was I was much younger than most of my peers. So I was doing a lot of things in amongst people who were 28 and yeah. 30, and yet I was only 14 and 15. And, in fact, I joined a band um, when I was 15 with um, students who were well into their late twenties, yeah. See, it never yeah. actually occurred to me because I mean, looking at you, looking at you now, you're you look very much like my peers. Um, but I'm 54 now. I'm 54 <laughs> this month. Oh so gosh, I I don't want to be in the habit of glorifying women who are aging so beautifully. But you're going to have to tell us what face cream you use. <laughs> Well, um, I have to say I, I'm hoping that I'll age well because my mother certainly has and um, she's just kept it really simple. In the end, you know, simplicity is the best and, and hopefully Cleanse and moisturise, drink a lot of water. <laughs> or all of the above, but let your intelligence shine because certainly if you're looking after this, then the rest should follow. I mean, that's that's the object of the game, isn't it? It's how to glow yeah. from within. I mean, I know that I, I only just two weeks ago I looked very crushed and I was crushed. And like you, I've been in Victoria for the entirety of the um, the lockdown. And, and for the artists, I mean, we've been kind of robbed of a year's worth, maybe more of our livelihood. And for me personally, it was a... a that's your retirement. It's begun and you didn't ask for it, but bang, it started. And, it's, exactly. and I just didn't, couldn't deal with that. It's I also actually hard. went for a stage dive. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Please, please say that again. Well, I, I, I actually, I found that um, something I was so unprepared for mentally that I lost my mind. And, you know, I was on the floor one morning um, sobbing for no apparent reason, well, for every reason, but no apparent reason that morning. It was just I just stood there and then fell to my knees and I thought, well, this is what going insane feels like. It's it's being robbed of your identity, robbed of your creativity and robbed of your productivity. The things that that you can do with your hands, with your voice, with your face, with your eyes and body and you don't have to ask permission and you need no one's kind of – you can just stand there and – do this and now suddenly someone said no more and I just bawled like a baby. That's uh, something that's come up a lot for a lot of the listeners of this podcast as well, particularly people like yourself that are such high achievers. And um, I, I hope this isn't too much of an assumption, no. but I assume no, no. a lot of your self-worth is tied to your productivity and how much you Most can definitely. achieve. Yes. I think like, what, what, what do you think about people who are particularly high achievers? It seems to be a big theme this year that uh, people who are, you know, perfectionists, performers, that kind of thing have really struggled and possibly possibly for the first time in their lives with anything like this because the, the the one thing that they have has been taken away from them and all of us at the same time. So it's kind of, you you know, uh, do, do you feel like you're experiencing this but everyone else, a lot of other people are experiencing it too and does that diminish it somehow for you? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, but I, I'm, I'm one of the people that believes that you should always strive to be, uh, be bigger, better, best because... I mean, it's your, after all, it's by your own decree. It's not occurring to you because you're trying to impose your, it's not, I actually don't, I don't, even starting to sing, I, I recall um, 
applause and other things and merits awards it's not like they've never meant anything to me it's just never been the incentive to do what I do Mm. um on stage it felt to me that it was the only place I felt I could socialize and have purpose and so I just maintained that as my you know my rule of thumb are you here because you can create some impact on a person I wasn't too I wasn't too concerned if they didn't love me I didn't, wasn't too concerned if, you know, Kate Soprano's music, yeah, not into that. Don't like the way she sings. But I quite like some of the things she says about blah, you know, like I'll take little bits and I'm all good with that, but I don't live for it. My, and my point of it is this. I've, I've seen a lot of people online sometimes being offended by the activity of others to try to remain buoyant in this time. And I think that's really short-sighted. I think that saying, it's like, it's the same thing that's happened in schools recently. I, I'm not an advocate for giving every child an equal winning ribbon, not because I believe that there are winners and losers. That's not what I believe in. I believe that you can always improve and get better than you are and that you can always learn and know more. There's so much more to know. I never, ever arrive at any plateau and say, yeah, I'm here. I nailed it. I've nailed me. I'm completely satisfied with me right now. And me will forever and a day be quite enough. Now, but let's not get that out of context. Me is enough. That's in another context, that's enough. But me is the working creative art form. So much to learn. I walk into an art gallery which being deprived of art and culture, people aren't getting to find a voice for their emotions, music and other things give you this, they, 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 they appeal to a part of you that you have to control in society to be a quote-unquote social person. But say you want to be antisocial one day. Say you want to bawl like a baby. Say you want to scream like a hyena. Say you want to get really angry about the way the conditions are in the world. And how are you going to exercise that without art, in my opinion? I want to I see love- the wall, you know, I want to see that primal scream of Brett Whiteley. I want to hear that aching beauty of a Leonard Cohen song sung into the dark of a of a perfect night. I want to hear, you know what I mean? Like I, I want that. I want that feeling. <laughs> and it's been taken. <laughs> So, so when, when you had that moment, when you're bawling on the floor, I just want to give you a hug that just broke my heart. Um, how, how did you pick yourself back up when you can't really have the solution to what that is right now? Actually, I, I wasn't putting myself back together very well. No, I wasn't. Um, and my daughter had come back in, this was the second lockdown. Um, she'd come back in from a, she had like me, it's very independent. She wanted to do a school away for a year. So she had been in America and um, she came back in the second lockdown when we felt that things were getting really quite. Where was she in America? She was in LA and things were getting. and the Still not great, but climate. One of the better states. Yeah, but just America generalised. Just mm. thought better be with your family. Imagine if we couldn't get it back, you know, on a plane or. Maybe they weren't going to let. They were going to cut the, the country border. Or anyway, it was just too 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 much to even contemplate. So she she came home, and then I found myself um, in this place. And I thought, okay, good. I'm going to save her 16 year old self. 
I'm going to defer it into her and send her to Sydney. So second lockdown, I said to her one morning, I woke up and I said to her, how do you feel about going, getting on a plane and going to your grandma's um, and go to school in Sydney while we work this out? And she's like, but I just got home. I said, I know, but I don't think you're going to have a life for the next few months here. I mean, what are you going to do? All your friends over in America will be at summer camp and enjoying a, a, a warm summer amongst all the friends jumping in and out of a pool. And here, all of your friends, you, you're not allowed to see them, though they live at the end of the street. And I, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't actually contemplate what that could feel like for a 16-year-old to not have life. So she went on a plane that night and came up here, went to school, and my husband joined her as well, and I remained in Melbourne. And I suppose my um, my psychological platform got worse, really. And my mum, you know, she's an artist, she's a painter. She'd come in and check in. And then you know what I then did? I just went, okay, I have to change up something. And what I've always done when I was either waiting for something like during pregnancy or was experiencing some mental interference, I'd start painting and I started painting. In fact, I've got paint on me here. There you oh. go. There's paint. <laughs> I just realised when I was looking at you, I'm going, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and I've got paint because I've been painting this morning. Um, I just painted. Is that the guitars that I saw yeah. on your Instagram? They're beautiful. They're, I love them. They're, they're, they're a, you'll notice it within them. They're like a, um, they're like a large mandala of like, I have to do things and often I'll get into a space and I'll just re- repeat, repeat, repeat until I've kind of like recalibrated. But that's, I definitely do that. I definitely know that we, within art and through art, I can find a perfect circle again and yes. all be well oh, with the that. world. Have you yeah. ever done that? Have you ever tried to find a perfect circle? Yeah. It's very zen. I reckon that's a really good remedy. It How are is. you doing, by the way? Are you all right? Oh, that's lovely of you. Um, yeah, no, we're good. We're good. We um have been in not as severe lockdown in as in Melbourne, but we just moved to the country about a year and a half ago, and I've got a, um, a almost two year old, and she oh. hasn't seen her grandparents since June. Oh, <laughs> so, no. yeah, so that's 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 been rough, but uh, it looks like the border's going to open soon. That's been my biggest mental barrier is just having a, a an actual hard border between myself and my parents. That's been the the worst bit, and also we don't really know anyone here either. So oh, even no. when yeah, so we've we've made a few friends, which is good, but like once the social restrictions lifted we were still kind of like well we still can't really hang out with anyone <laughs> so wow. yeah are you an arts and craft kind of girl too yeah yeah I am actually I I knit and I crochet because you'll find there do you find that especially being where you are now um is it's a wonderful way to kind of exercise your mind into nothing like literally exercise thought into a, just a simple exercise of nothing one loop and then you have to do the next loop and ensure that everyone is its own cycle. Don't you love yep, that? Absolutely. I also, love knitting. I can, I can highly recommend ride on lawn mowing. It's the most zen thing I've if you can find that. if you I've can find someone to well, we went so to a farm. Good. We went to a farm this weekend and um, they've got a ride on lawn mower. And the horses apparently they need the long grass and the, and she's going out of her wits because she's saying my husband's addicted 
to getting on the right on lawn. I keep saying to them, they need to eat. Stop mowing the lawns. <laughs> it's so good. I cannot tell you. It's just, it's so zen. Just like put on a podcast. And when I'm actually listening to podcasts in, in other circumstances, I find I don't actually engage with them as much as when I'm on the mower. Like if I'm in the car, I'm, you know, kind of trying to not hit other cars or if I'm shopping, I'm kind of reading labels and things. But when I'm on the mower, it's when I connect the most with a podcast. It's, it's excellent. Wow. Highly recommend if you ever, if you ever get the chance. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm on it. You watch. I'll take a picture and send it. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Um, So it was in 1983 that the band I'm Talking formed. So this was like the the first band that you were a part of. And you were 15, 16 at the time, yeah? Yeah. Um, And so that's kind of how you launched your professional career. Uh, And before then and since, you've, you've just been so versatile. So you've done jazz and pop and solo performing and performing with bands and musical theater and film. Can you talk to us about how you've successfully reinvented yourself so many times and so successfully? I, uh, I'm not sure if I can explain any success or the, the way it was successful, but I can tell you that I'm fearless when it comes to uh, putting myself out there for an opportunity. I'm, I'm not scared of failing because I know that failure is a, in a sense, failure is a, uh, a necessary tool to be able to refine what it is you're going to ask for in the first place. It's like I think Einstein said, it's not the actual solution that people are looking for. They just need to know how to couch the question. If you know how to ask the question best, you'll get life's magic. Um, every time I employ a new craft, whether it's music theatre or I'm, I'm employing a new craft in learning how to play an instrument or working with a band or working with an ensemble or, you know, getting engaged with that, I'm usually following an idea of myself that I haven't yet seen. Like, for instance, I see myself first doing it and then I go and inhabit the space of what I thought I saw in that moment. Like I've always seen myself in music theatre because I I saw myself on stage once as a 12-year-old, right, watching a movie, and it's like I superimposed myself onto the stage where that person was at that time and I could feel how dignified it felt to be in that space singing that song. And the song, by the way, was I Don't Know How to Love Him from Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm -hmm. So I was watching the stage performance with Marsha Hines. I'm eight years old and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at Marsha Hines and I went into her skin. I felt like I occupied her and I felt exactly what she felt as an eight-year-old. I felt the yearning for love with someone who was not really lovable, like couldn't really necessarily be mine. I felt that she had a very important role and that all the whole stage was only simply there because she was holding it all together. I said, I'm going to fucking play that role. I am going to be that. So it wasn't so much as wanting to be a singer because I didn't really want to be a singer. It was more like what was the place I wanted to be and where did I want to be standing and how did I want that to feel? And I still think I'm chasing all of those illusions now. And it's a much and it's a much healthier way to to dream yourself up in the in the future. In fact, my daughter coined a beautiful phrase when she was a kid, and it says everything to me. She says, "Oh, mummy, imagine that! Imagine that! Imagine that!" (laughs) And I said, "You know, I think I've been doing that my whole life." I think you absolutely have. Um, I have to say, I did actually see you play Mary in 1994. My parents, my parents took me to see you and Johnny. (laughs) And 
I 100% understand the feeling you're talking did about. You I can into my space. Did I you did occupy my skin. I, I occupied your skin a million times. I did also have the dream of playing Mary in Jesus Christ Superstar. I never quite made it, but I did play uh, one of the handmaids in a production <gasps> in Canberra. Oh, so <laughs> I did wonderful. the little background bit. <laughs> well, do you? I don't know if you remember it. If it was in your production, but every night, uh, so this is how powerful music is, right? So music forever sets the stage. It's the mood of life. It's the mood or the sound of humanity. And um, when we would gather together at the beginning of a concert, like we did 90 shows, there were 18,000 people every night. It was a phenomenal success. But there was this choral thing, which all of you would have done, and it was that piece that went, um, ah, ah, And then they had this little hum which they say, good old Judas, poor old Judas. Remember that? I love that. And you would sit, I would be, I would be there and, and I'd be doing this, you know, with all the girls backstage. Oh, and then I went and had a hamburger for lunch. That was great. I sat on the beach. Remember, remember, remember that would start and we'd all go <sighs> like this. And then we were in from the minute that start until the minute it would end. We were poised in this story like this, you know. And then the end, as it would finish, would be exhausted. All of us, I speak for every one of the cast members. Like, like, what just happened there? That was like Amazing. Just the goosebumps. I do have to say though, like I, you know, you you were talking about Marsha Hines and how you like went into her and you you uh, really connected with her in that moment. Um, I, I've told a few of my friends this week that I was interviewing you for the podcast and, um, you know how you said earlier, how you don't care if people don't like you and, you know, oh, maybe I don't like Kate Sobrano. I can say without <laughs> doubt, every single person I have said that I was interviewing this week was like, oh my God, I love Kate Sobrano. <laughs> and I'm like, me too, right? Like you, like e- random people that Your wouldn't have even. so beautiful. Oh, I, I can't even tell you how, how how much of a thrill this is for me. Um, what does it What does it feel like to you know? Because you have your Marsha Hines, and I'm sure you've got a, a million other Marsha Hines. How does it feel to know that, like, so many women, girls from way back when up till now, are in the shower with a hairbrush <laughs> singing "I Don't Know How to Love Him" or "Pash" or any of your other brilliant songs? Like, what? Like, how does that feel? Well, can I tell you first, I, I defined, I found out what it was my purpose was in life. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier when I said as a kid, I just didn't want to miss out on the opportunity to know that I'd been here and what sort of thing I'd left behind. I am relatable. So, you know, at the at the age of 16, I had a face full of cystic acne. I had my, when I wanted to be a dancer, my breasts rebelled and I got a D cup. When I wanted to, um, you know, wear fashion, high fashion, I was a size 12, 14 in the height of the 80s, very unfashionable. So in in essence, I decided that I had to create um, art which was inclusive without having to, you know, say oh, I'm doing it as opposed to them, you know, over them. I mean, I've, I've had only um, really... And, I'll, and, and actually, I'll be very personal about this with you, with probably less than others, but 
um, when you look at the history of Australian music, you've got the Delta, Olivia, Kylie, and you look what what do these things having what do these artists have in common? Um, it's it's goes beyond music. It's actually a whole package, and I was none of those things. And we hadn't had any up to date. Other Marsha was the only woman of colour we had had in the history of Australian music. So we had. At Max, we had Yvonne Gulagong, maybe, was the first tennis player, um, who was a Koori, you know, and we had, that's it. That's it. So I just went, well, all right then, I am going to just, I'm going to strike a note which says I am not a note until I choose, you know, I mean, I'm not a note that's, like, permanent. I want to be fluid and I want to change and I if I want to get fat or skinny or tall or short or white or black or you know I'm going to just continue to keep working my craft until people are colorblind they're um ageist blind they're and all that they will hear is the sound of my heart and that's all they're going to hear because the rest is a fruitless exercise it, it can only end in pain it's been painful to learn it and um, it's why perhaps maybe your friends, there's part of them that see themselves in me. There is, absolutely. I think being such a big fan of yours for so long and you being such a big part of, of me growing up, my, my father is actually an enormous fan of yours. So I, I haven't actually told him that I'm interviewing you yet. So. <laughs> What's his name? His name is Don. I should say, I'll, I'll do a little bit. Hi, Don, it's Kate Soprano here sending you a big and thank you for raising such an exquisite and intelligent daughter. We're having the best conversation under the sun, moon and stars. And you rock. Oh, my God, that's amazing. He's going to love that so much. I was actually You'll chatting to, to him the other out. day. <laughs> we, um, we actually had, uh, we listened to uh, the Mariah Carey Christmas album every yeah, yeah. Christmas. And oh, the series for Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but we were we were listening to it a few Christmases ago. And we were just like, God, I wish Kate Sobrano would do one of these. Like, I know. Would... I know. I wish I would too. Oh, I wish man. I'd, I wish I'd get off my lazy old ass <laughs> and just. Do it. <laughs> we were just like we'd listen to it so hard, like because he's oh, got he's got all listen, your CDs. Like I don't know it, when I was in lockdown. Um, just before lockdown happened, we built this apartment and in the backyard and this amazing girl moved in, Kathleen Halloran. If you go on Instagram, you must check her out. She's she's one of the finest guitarists I've ever had the pleasure of. She's like a shredder. She's amazing, 25 years old, and she's just nutsoid. She is the biggest freak for Christmas, <laughs> like crazy freak for Christmas. In fact, I think she actually only wanted to meet me because she knew that I might have an in with someone at Christmas carols, Melbourne, and she could come and play. So um, just watch this space. I think Christmas is coming. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I'll, be, I'll be the first one in line to I have a question to, to ask you. Would you be bothered if it sounded sort of like a kind of like a, a sort of like a Hawaiian-style Christmas or would you prefer that it's more traditional sort of orchestral Christmas? Like what's your vibe? Look, I'll be honest, I'd go with orchestral Christmas, but yep. I reckon you can chuck in a little bit of whatever influence, what, whatever is influencing you at the time. Because I was thinking about this the other day with your music. There's actually no such thing as classic Kate. 
It's it, because it's you you just you just reinvent constantly. I mean, there's always the jazz undertone because that's your beautiful voice. That's 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 right. the gift that you have. That's what you work with. So you've got that that beautiful, rich. I was lis- I was listening to. We're just about to talk about your new album and your new song, but I was listening to mm. your song "Hold On" the other day, and I was just like. Your voice is so rich and so beautiful and I kind of forget because I'm so I've listened to so much of your stuff it's like it's been on play basically my whole life oh my and I God. kind of feel like it just became like it, background noise is the wrong thing No I understand I, it's part of your life Yeah exactly but I love it so much that I kind oh. of forgot and and when this new song came out I'm listening to it and I was like oh my god you're like it's beautiful it's just such oh. a gorgeous song I love it I've had the best compliment once from a little girl uh she said when I hear your voice, it sounds like rainbow. No, it sounds like sand with rainbows in it. Oh, my and goodness. it's a perfect analogy. I think it's a perfect analogy to how I hear it as well. Like, obviously, my voice has changed over the years. And, and because I've been so well documented through the course of my mm. life from a 15 year old until now, a 54 year old, um, I feel I'm finding a, a, a sound which is more wholesome and more honest. I'm not pinching it in parts and I'm not squishing it in other parts and I'm not smashing it in other parts. You know how you go through this phase with yourself and you should be entitled to do that. You should throw yourself around and really mess yourself up. But I had this beautiful thing, bittersweet, beautiful thing happen and it was on the eve of um, Dancing with the Stars. Oh, I loved you on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you a really cute story. It's sort of a sad story and it, but it ends up really great. Um, I just had Gypsy. And uh, I don't know about you, but hormones can do strange things to bodies. My larynx, I got a small tear. So what had happened effectively, the hormones had made it dry or do something odd. Something happened. And it it hadn't happened through from singing. And um, I had to get a surgery on my throat. Yeah, it makes you clear your throat, doesn't it? Yeah, I was like... It's okay. It's okay. Anything. These things are absolutely can be handled. But I didn't know that at the time. And the the surgeon was saying, we can't actually promise that it will sound the same, but we're going to fix it up. We're going to get in there. We're going to fix it up. But you can't talk for a month. Not a word, not a sound. I've got a small baby and I'm about to do this show. And so my partner, John Collins, John Paul Collins and I, we danced in silence in the month ahead to prepare and honestly that act was so beautiful and therapeutic that by the time we got on the show we'd won the first the first day I could make a noise was the first day of the show that's unbelievable do you think you ended up with a stronger connection with him because you couldn't talk absolutely we were winning before we'd even begun the contact the body contact because of the fact of me being silent he rarely spoke as well he's very shy and a very elegant Maori man, tall and gracious. He just swept me up in his arms and he just kind of took me in and around this place and space. And I honestly, in the end, you know, I was doing cartwheels off his shoulders and, you know, exposing my nanonickers to all of the country and I had no shame at all, no shame at all. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I, I did see it. It was it was stunning. Um, let's let's talk about your song, Hold On. It, it's gorgeous. I've been listening to it all week. I think my... Um, my, uh, it actually came up in my iTunes because I do listen to your music a lot. And I was like, hey, this one. Oh, oh. Um, oh no, it didn't. Sorry. I've, I got the preview of it. It's not on there yet, Did is you? it? 
Oh, it might be by now though. It, it might be, be by now. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I had the, I had the file on my on my phone, so it was popping uh-huh. up. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's always a certain amount of interpretation when it comes to the lyrics of songs. So I think Good. what people take away from songs is always a bit different to what you intended for a song to mean. I do feel like "Hold On" is the anthem we all needed for 2020. Can you tell me what the song is actually about? Yeah, it's exactly that. It was written exactly within this time. In fact, the songs, um, it, I had been, I'd been invited to make this record for Sony before COVID. Truth be known, I was, a, I was sort of a little like reluctant because I was thinking they're beautiful songs, they're classic songs. But whenever I've seen certain other artists doing this kind of material, I feel like it's, it's like saying, and let's welcome her into retirement. Uh, she can go out beautifully on a series of other people's songs and she'll sing them beautifully. And, and But I thought, oh, look, you know, okay, maybe maybe this is it and that's fine, that's fine, let's just do it. So I was a little bit nonplussed about it, to be honest. COVID hit and, and still Sony was saying we'd still love to be able to support and help you on this. And I just said, well, only if I can do the bookends and I write both of them. And I actually get to place myself in with the significance of these other artists who I love, I do love. Peter Allen I met um, and Carole King, I've always loved her music. The Beatles, uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with this quality of company, Leonard Cohen. But I wanted, I, I said, I need to talk as an artist about what I'm experiencing and hold on is what I'm experiencing right now. And I'm not gonna make it unless I rally together the troops and all of the artists, you know, not one of us can go free until all of us are free. That's the feeling. So we have to help each other hang in there. And I didn't want it to feel, um, you know, but it was the thing that helped me out of a very dark space. I, I definitely hear that in, in the song because I was listening to it and you can also tell that you wrote it from Melbourne. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Just such a different experience for everybody else in the country. And I'm country Victoria, so even I don't really, I I can't really connect with how bad it was in Melbourne because we never got quite as far as you guys did. No, you guys have had freedom and you've also got space. I mean, I yeah. glancing around me and I'd see these one-bedroom apartments with one single Mm. person in it and I'd just look up to them and I'd I'd wish them so much love because I could tell – but, you know, it, they're not like we're not like Europeans. You couldn't just open your door and be face-to-face with a bunch of lovely Latin people singing at you from their balcony. Mm. That doesn't happen in Australia. I'm sure your neighbours wouldn't have hated that, though, Kate. Also, <laughs> we've looked after each other, Giovanna. We have a very, very um, strong relationship with our Italian neighbours. They're really – we share food across the backyard and, you know, beautiful. But for the most part, though, I'm sad to say that CBD Australians, people within the business districts, took social distancing – literally and stop talking to you on the street though you were miles apart and covered from head to toe you would say hi with a nod or a gesture and that person would turn away like this and I thought man someone is truly winning here at distancing all of us from each other 
And that's what I was saying. Isn't that the distance you asked me about? Brunswick Street. Now, that that is the polarity of what that mm. used to be. Migrants and families and children and musicians and business people and, you know, there's this chaos of communication going all the time. Noisy, loud, landlords, um, people getting kicked in, kicked out, taken on, you know, like, ah, oh, it's crazy. We're so, so safe. And yeah. we're, we're like hermetically sealed from each other. Scary. Yeah, it's it's been such it's it's been such a tough time, particularly as an artist, like losing all of that beautiful connection and life and beauty. It's just been so difficult for particularly people in Melbourne because all of the reason why you live in Melbourne is not to sit in your house. (laughs) That's everyone's houses is the worst thing about Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, and Melbourne is famed for its arts and culture. We know we can find humanity when we go and join force and join hands in those live venues. It's like it, it, it was the live, it's the live capital of the world of live music. And anyway, I'm not even going to try to, I, all I'm going to hope for is that um, that the artists, like I saw Joe Camilleri had to do what I've had to do and uh, great Victorians, great, you know, have meaning of, of, of making this move to just because they know that they're not going to have a year's worth of work to mm rely on so we've had to kind of think ahead I just did that horrific two-week quarantine in a hotel on my own which I wouldn't recommend anyone (laughs) you have to have like you know the willpower to just sort of defy your own inner thoughts good luck with that (laughs) and you can't actually leave can you you have to stay you can't even go you can't open the window um (sighs) you know if you when retrieving your breakfast from the door if it's open just to Five seconds too long, an alarm goes off. Oh, oh my gosh. That's it's shocking. Not good. I've actually got friends that went from LA to Sydney and they had to quarantine with two kids. One's five and oh. one's nine. Just horrible. And they were already planning on moving anyway. And they were like, this just made it so much worse. Oh, no, oh. no, no. Oh, no. Just horrific. Um, yeah, sorry. I've got I've got a few more questions for you. I'm just I'm so distracted just having a lovely chat to you. It's been That's so lovely. Um, so th- this <clears throat> the, uh, podcast is actually about productivity. So I, yeah. I interview people people have heard of and people people haven't heard of. You're clearly yeah. one that people have heard of, uh, and it, it, it's kind of about getting some tips from you on how you have achieved so much, how you continue to achieve so much. So how do habits come into play here? Because you wear so many different hats. What's your morning routine like? Are there systems that you use every day how does how does Kate happen every day I think that you uh, start with what you want first this is how I do it and I work myself back hour wise and make um <coughs> excuse me I make notes about what's going to take to get so I start with the want and then I work my back way through doing what do I need to do and then I have to start in the very very beginning before everything is am I of the mind set to be able to confront and handle what it's going to take to do all these things to have what I want. Um, I'm sure that's true of every single productive person you've spoken to. They have like a, you know, and then you have to calculate the timeline and how much effort is going to be required, uh, assess the effort versus the outcome, and you get pretty good at sometimes fudging the effort where you can sort of play around the edges a bit and pretend like it's not that hard, and so it becomes a bit of a game, and that's also very lovely. But I always end up um, with 
uh, desirous, something I'm desiring is the outcome and only I can assess if I actually got it. Like others can come up to me and go, my God, that was amazing. How did you do that? No, I didn't tick this box. Okay, so what am I going to go back to and do next time? I'm going to go back to that same place where I dropped the ball. I'm going to collect that ball. I'm going to carry that ball with me and I'm going to take it forward. And then I'll know that I've not only attained what I wanted, but I've added something else to it as well. I've added the beauty, the aesthetic, if you will, or the art form of having desired something and then made it happen. Um, Do you think that you can retroactively add your desire to something that you might not necessarily have been desiring in the first place? So if there's a task that you're not particularly keen on doing, can you kind of, yeah? You have to be willing to confront the things. You have to be willing to confront your authorship and also the authorship of the world because the world is keen on creating, like as you said before, the way other people might think of me. I can't control that, Um, but I can respond to it and I can be responsible for it. Like, for instance, if someone was to come up to me and say, you know, I saw um, in something you were doing there as an artist that you were helping a variety of other people, other artists, and we'd like very much to invest in that. Um, We'd like you to do this project over here, which I wasn't planning on doing, and we want to formalise that and we want to contract you to that. And I think, oh, I don't want to be contracted to anything, right? However... I have to respond to the fact that there's something they saw in me, maybe that I hadn't yet fully even fleshed out, maybe on mentorship or management or some sort of professional consultancy, and I have to look at it. And I, at this age too, I can actually look at it and go, wow, it never did occur to me that that could be something I could do. Look at that. Um, I'm not great at, for instance, one-on-one mentoring on this type of Zoom type line. Um, I find that exhausting. But if someone says to me, I'll put you on a lineup and you've got like, Um, several thousand people you can talk to at the same time, I'm like, boom, done. And then I'll work out the effort to get that done and then I'll try to do it as personally as I can one-on-one like this. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, So if you could share your top three life-changing productivity hacks with our listeners, what would they be? Drill, drill, drill. (laughs) All three things. (laughs) (laughs) they can all be the same thing that's fine (laughs) no no well I mean in the end it only comes down to how well do you know it before you do it so that could be you know that you could you could break that down into prepare to deliver you could break it down to um, streamline those things that you're doing and only make those things that you're doing that count you know absorb your energies and your interest you know I mean I I could break it down a thousand different ways but in the end it all just comes back to just know your shit yeah I love that so it's just practice really and I think it's that that's practice 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 drill 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 no 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 your 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 shit 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 <laughs> because you don't want to be stuck on stage not knowing the last verse of I don't know how to love him <laughs> well see this is what happens you only have yourself to blame in that moment You only have yourself to blame. And if you find yourself kicking one of your local employees, your husband, the cat, hurting yourself in some unnecessary way to make yourself right, well, then you're already halfway outside of responsibility and you want to be the boss. And the only way you can be the boss is you have to own up for things. If you didn't do any of those things and it was your fault, how can you blame anybody else? I absolutely love that. If you've got time before you go, would you mind telling us the funniest thing that's ever happened to you on stage? One of the loveliest things that ever happened in a kind of sad sort of way was uh, that 
my brother, um, this is just to go on siblings and their care and love for you, um, Prince Charles, there was an assassination attempt on him here in Sydney about oh, really? 30, 30 years, but it wasn't actually, it was just a, in the end it was discovered a guy had just had a starter gun and he was uh, protesting against something. But we didn't know that at the time and I was on stage singing the anthem when it happened next to Prince Charles and all the security guys that came running on stage and they all fell all over him and flattened him to the ground and kept him safe and sound and I'm standing there all alone. <gasps> I got my own and my brother came from up underneath the stairs oh. and he came and took my hand and he walked me off the stage. <laughs> so That's a forever, beautiful story. Forever grateful for my old brothers. And that was Kate Sobrano. As you can tell by my very thinly veiled excitement, it was such a thrill chatting to Kate. She's just as lovely and warm and approachable as you would expect. And she was just so generous in her interview, you know, talking about her struggles during lockdown and how it affected her productivity. I hope that the listeners took away that sense of permission to allow ourselves to fall and feel what we need to feel before we pick ourselves back up again. And also, like, take time picking ourselves back up again. There just seems to be this big rush to try to bounce back from moments of hardship. And I just love how Kate spoke about taking your time and healing at your own pace. My favorite thing Kate said in the interview in regards to productivity was drill, 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 or put very simply, know your shit. In the age of social media, everything is made to look so easy and it's designed to look that way. So to be inspirational and for things to appear totally seamless. And it was just so grounding to hear about the hard work that it took to create one of Australia's most successful musicians. Kate's single Hold On is available on all good streaming services and her album Sweet Inspiration will be released in February 2021. Also keep an eye out for her performance in Sydney in the coming months. I have seen on her Instagram that she's got a couple of gigs coming up. So if you have the opportunity to go and see her perform, please do. I can't wait until I can go and see her perform myself. Stick around at the end of this episode to hear the full version of Hold On. It really is the anthem of our times. Coming up next week on the show is me. I thought I'd break up the interviews with some solo shows that concentrate on one particular topic. Next week's topic is morning routines. This year has been a shit show for everyone. So next week we take a look at the science behind morning routines, how they can help you improve your day and why you should have one like now. So many things for so long There's a thousand lives just to make this home And I know that my home is you And this world is changing so fast And I feel that I'm changing a whole lot too And I wouldn't be me without you Spending so long trying to work it out Taking for granted the freedoms we've got Spending the time trying to make time, make time And nobody's listening, nobody's awake We're trying so hard but we cannot escape All of this time trying to make time, make time 
listening to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at carlyjacobs.com. That's carlyjacobs, D-O-T-C-O-M. You can also email me productivity at carlyjacobs.com. I actually really, really love hearing from listeners. So seriously, don't be shy. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash productivity. This season's book club pick is Live What You Love by entrepreneur Naomi Simpson. And we have Naomi on the show later in the season to answer all your questions about the book. You can purchase the book at Naomi Simpson, S-I-M-S-O-N.com and use the code productivity10 for a 10% discount. You have until the end of November, 2020 to read the book and get your questions in. So get reading. Also, if you love the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Even $5 a month would be a huge help in covering production, editing, equipment, promotion, and guest wrangling. Just visit patreon.com forward slash productivity. Oh, and one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life.